The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present, and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association, and welcome to Season 4 of Retail Therapy, proudly brought to you by American Express. This season, we'll be focusing on tech and innovation within the retail sector. We'll be talking to retailers who are utilising new and transformative technologies to support their business, as well as deep dive into the stories of startups who are taking the lead on retail innovation. Joining me today on Retail Therapy is Kate Pounder, the CEO of the Technology Council of Australia. Kate has led the Tech Council since it was founded in August 2021. It's the peak body representing Australia's tech sector, and its membership includes the likes of Atlassian, Google, Microsoft, Amazon Web Services, plus many more. A former managing director at Accenture and associate partner at McKinsey, Kate is a public policy and research specialist who's focused on supporting and growing Australia's rapidly expanding tech industry. Kate, nice to see you and welcome. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. So tell us how the Tech Council of Australia came about. You're a relatively new industry body and have already grown to represent many of our most successful technology companies with over 160 members. What are the priorities for you as an organisation? We are so grateful for the support we've seen at the Tech Council in our first year from the industry, but also stakeholders more broadly, like our friends at the AARA. We were founded because there hasn't been a single influential policy and research focused peak body for Australia's tech sector in the same way that retailers have benefited from having ARA. And so that was the gap we set out to fill one year ago. And we determined we'd focus on three things, doing policy and advocacy work, undertaking data-driven research, and then trying to improve engagement between our sector and governments and stakeholders more broadly. Our priorities were, for policy issues, three things. The first was jobs and skills and migration, because skill shortages are one of the biggest issues impacting our sector. But I think the jobs opportunity in the sector is conversely one of the biggest opportunities for Australia. We secondly focused on the tax and the investment environment because we know that if we want to maintain Australia's standard of living, if we want to create new innovative companies and and have a dynamic economy, then we need to get those fundamental settings right so that we're encouraging that innovation and that investment. And then the third thing we focus on is regulation. There's obviously an increasing number of portfolios that are grappling with what advances in technology mean for regulatory frameworks. And that's everything from critical technologies and security policies, through to data policy, privacy policy, competition policy. So we want to be able to provide that expert industry view on each of those areas. Sounds like a really large remit. When you think about your role and your organisation, what are the key challenges? What needs to be addressed, do you think? Great question. I think that There's three things, but again, I'm a bit of an optimist, so I think about these as much as opportunities as challenges. I think the first challenge is to articulate to the Australian community 
the impacts on them and the benefits of them from innovation. I'm not sure that as an industry we've done the best job of that in the past. So I think the conversation about innovation, innovation can feel disconnected from people's lives. So one thing we've tried really hard to do is to bring it back to the tangible impacts, the tangible benefits on everyday Australians. So that's why, for example, we started by having a jobs target to say we think there could be 1.2 million people working in tech jobs in Australia by 2030. And also that we think the value of tech sector activity could be worth $250 billion to the Australian economy. Because we think if we can show those tangible benefits, then we can ask how we want to realise them. But I think that applies more broadly than just those big targets. We find, for example, a lot of Australians don't know about different tech jobs. They don't know how to get into them. They don't know which companies are employing people in them. And that that basic awareness gap hinders, I think, people taking up the opportunity. I think the second challenge relates to the first, which is a lack of good data and good evidence on the sector. So, for example, until we came along, there wasn't really a clear view on who works in the tech workforce, and particularly because, as you and I have talked about, for a lot of those people may be sitting in industries like retail, not just sitting in a software company. Yes. So filling gaps about the nature of the tech workforce, about the jobs impact, about the economic contribution of tech sector activity to Australia. We put out a report a couple of weeks ago with McKinsey on where we think Australia has a comparative advantage in the tech sector. All these questions that would be probably pretty basic in other industries are, are often unanswered in tech. So I think that's been an important role for us to play and, and a sort of gap to fill. And then I think the third one is that policy, you know, in the tech sector is still very nascent in a lot of areas that, you know, AI is a reasonably new mature technology. You know, the rise of big data sets and analytical practices are still relatively new in our economy. So there's lots of policy areas where no one has a handbook or necessarily a pre-existing regulatory framework which sets out the answer or even sometimes has agreement and consensus on what outcomes we're seeking to get from policy choices. So I think working between industry and governments to try and identify these new policy issues, to work out the outcomes we want from them, to then work out whether we have the right regulatory frameworks or other responses in place to achieve them. That's a big challenge. But again, I think also quite an exciting area of policy. Fascinating. The Tech Council of Australia and many of your members have their origins in startup organisations. A good example has been Afterpay, the iconic. What role do you see startups playing in the coming five years in Australia? And how can startups and larger enterprise or even SMBs work together? It's such a good question. I mean, Australia has been lucky enough to produce about 100 companies in the tech sector in the last couple of decades valued at over $100 million. But 67 of them, so two-thirds of them, have only come since 2010. So what I think that underscores that these these startups today really are the growth engines of the future and they're the source of new jobs, of new innovation of new products. So particularly as we emerge from the pandemic, as our economy has been through some shocks and some changes, I think it's so important that we continue to create these new companies and these new ideas and these sort of new forms of economic value. I think secondarily, what do they need to succeed? I find it just getting the basic foundational settings of policy right is really important. So things like the R and um, Research and Development Tax Incentive, things like employee share schemes, the sort of um, measures that allow VC investment, that all of those basics are actually really important to companies across the board, whether you're an iconic in online commerce, whether you're Afterpay and Paytech, whether you're Atlassian, all of them have depended upon these settings to get started. But obviously, on top of that, 
you need people with good ideas and people with an entrepreneurial spirit as the real core to found and create those new companies. Mm. Now, you touched on this a little bit because there's no doubt the tech industry in Australia is on a powerful trajectory. And you did release a report that was launched by Minister Ed Husick outlining the goal of having 1.2 million tech workers in Australia by 2030. What were the key findings of that report and what support have you received and are you seeking from government? Yeah, we put out a report exactly as you said because the federal government endorsed the Tech Council's goal of having 1.2 million people in tech jobs by 2030. So to be helpful in that endeavour, we put out a report saying, well, here's how we think we can get there. Like, where, What will those jobs be? What kind of training pathways will they need? And, you know, what do we think are the barriers to people getting to the jobs and the solutions? And so... From that work, we found that there's five areas we need to focus on in the next 12 months. The first is raising awareness about the jobs. A lot of Australians, as I said, don't know these jobs exist, don't know how to get into them. So we think some kind of um, campaign to help with that and also a new national virtual work experience model is really important. The second thing we said is we have to start innovating our training products and pathways, particularly ones that suit people reskilling or that suit new jobs for which there hasn't traditionally been a form of accredited training. Um, And one idea we have there is a modern digital apprenticeship scheme because we think that not all the jobs in tech require tertiary pathways, but quite often the VET system hasn't kind of kept pace with these modern training products. The third thing we said is we need to fix skill migration. It's the timeframes for processing visas have really blown out, and particularly for certain areas of tech with gaps in highly experienced workers, they're basically impossible to fill without relying to a degree on the skill migration system, but that's not working fast enough at the moment to be able to fill those roles. We'd also called for some reform to international students' visas because two-thirds of the people studying an ICT degree in Australia are international students and more than half leave within two years because that was sort of what their visa allowed. The fourth thing we said is we need to fix or improve diversity within the sector. For example, only one in four people working in tech jobs are female. We think we should do better and we think if we do, it'll have benefits for broader problems like a gender pay gap and you know increasing women's participation in, in high-paid work. And then the fifth thing we said is we think we need to get better at more continuously understanding these workforce needs and these shortages and how effectively these interventions are working so that we can keep iterating it over time to make sure that we're able to hit that goal. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you hear the government talk about apprenticeships, it's often it, it's straight to tradespeople, right? They don't mm-hmm. think beyond tradespeople, and which is, has a gender bias by the nature of the work. The idea of a digital apprenticeship makes really complete sense. So uh, we need to be able to breed our own people here uh, in the country to solve for the skill shortages. So just whilst we're talking about skills shortages, many of the skill shortages we have in this country specifically are in data and digital, and retail mm-hmm. businesses are feeling that in terms of the skill sets and roles that they're looking to fill. Do you think we're over-reliant on skilled migrants to fill those tech positions and could we be doing more upskilling of our existing talent? It's such a great question. I'm always astonished when I go out and talk to major retailers and see how many people they're employing in data science and software engineering roles. I think you know, Officeworks alone has 400 data scientists and software engineers. I think Bunning has well over 600. So it's a huge part of the retail workforce, but because it's also a huge part of pretty much every other industry's workforce now, the demand is high and the supply is low. My view is that it's not one solution, it's multiple solutions that will 
allow us to address that skill shortage. So we think that the primary way actually people are going to come into these kind of jobs in the future will be through reskilling. I think there's probably around sort of 253,000 people that will need to come into the tech sector in roles through reskilling pathways over the next eight years. We also think, as I said before, just making more concrete and high quality Entry-level pathways for Australians is really important. And that's from university, but also from the vocational sector, because that's the one that hasn't to date been keeping pace with the demand mm. as fully as the tertiary sector has. And then I think there will always remain some role for skilled migration. But I think in our sector, that's a role targeted at very technical professions, so things like software engineering or more advanced machine learning roles, and particularly where you need people with, say, nine plus or you know more years of experience where the training sector can't just magically produce people with years of experience you know, in three to four years. Yes. And I yes. think filling that gap is particularly important. So we have experienced people who can coach staff. So if you can bring in, say, a person who's led a major analytics function for a huge retailer in the US, like that can be really beneficial to bring that person into Australia as Australian retailers, say, are building out their own function because you can get the benefit of that yes. advice. Yeah. There's some great ideas there. I think your, your report also outlined, uh, as you mentioned, those five key barriers that prevent Australians from accessing tech jobs. One of them is the lack of awareness about what tech jobs exist and how to get into them. And there's also demographic skews with women you've just spoken about and older Australians and people in regional areas underrepresented. How do you think we can break down some of these barriers? Again, I, you know, I think it'll be multiple actions, not a single silver bullet. But I've been thinking a lot with our members about how we can raise awareness as an industry. So I think we need to think about running some um, industry, sort of multi-sector industry campaigns around what tech jobs are and who the major employers are just to raise awareness. Um, we're also... We were really excited at the idea of a national virtual work experience model. One thing we're very conscious of is a lot of people, including the groups that you just named, often find physical work experience quite hard to engage with. If you're living in a regional area, you may not have a job as a data scientist or software engineer and a retailer sort of sitting in your backyard or, you know, you may not know the kind of companies who would have those roles, like they may not be thinking that retailers, for example, have those kinds of jobs opportunities. So we think a model like that, that sort of brings the ability to try a job to the person, whoever they are, wherever they live, can really help demystify these jobs and also, I think, overcome stereotypes about what the jobs are and who can work in them because many of these jobs are very creative jobs or commercial jobs. They're not sort of simply jobs for people who want to sit in a room and code. Absolutely. Now, sustainability is on our minds a lot as Australians and in Australian business. How is the Tech Council working with its members and with government to address this challenge? How big a role do you see tech playing in developing solutions within the climate space in Australia? And what are some of the areas that technology companies are needing to address when it comes to battling emissions? Another great question, Paul. I think, I think as you say, there's two sort of basic roles for the tech sector. One is in our own practices as a sector and the way that we are decarbonizing the economy through our own operations. And then there's also the products and services that the sector is producing that might help other people do the same. On the first point, when we've benchmarked the sector, in general, the carbon emissions profile, the environmental profile of the tech sector is probably relatively good compared to some more traditional industries. And it's probably been an, a 
area where tech companies have been particularly keen to be on the front foot and do the right thing, like more so, in fact, than their share of carbon emissions would sort of suggest. So, for example, if you look at the top companies in the world that are purchasing renewable sources of energy, not just doing carbon offsets, the tech companies are very high on that list, even though it's only responsible for something like 2% of global emissions. So I think the industry has a real opportunity in terms of its own practices to be a leader and as we shift to a more digital economy to help with the decarbonisation of the economy through its own practices. But bearing in mind it's sort of a reasonably small fraction of emissions to start with. I think in terms of the products, I think this is a massive opportunity for Australia. If you look at sort of recent work that we put out, which was looking at where does Australia have a comparative advantage in tech, energy and environmental tech both came out as areas that were high potential and then ones particularly energy tech where we're attracting a pretty good share of global VC capital, which is a you know one way of saying the world is betting on us. So I think that's something to be really excited by. And I also think even things like, The fact that Australia has a lot of land mass and we have pretty good advantages when it comes to renewable uh, energy means that our capacity, say, to produce green data centres or more um, low energy or sort of low emissions data centres is probably higher than certainly some other countries in the region, like Singapore or Hong Kong, for example, which are more landlocked and have fewer of those natural advantages in terms of renewable energy. So I think we can also turn some of these features in our economy to our advantage in a in a world where we're trying to reduce the emissions impact. Absolutely. Now, you thinking about this, uh, Kate, you did start as the CEO of the Tech- Technology Council of Australia in August 2021. That's like midst the pandemic. You've just sort of hit just over a year now, uh, a year and a half it would be. What's When you reflect, what do you think you, your greatest achievements have been? A couple of things stand out. I think the thing that's been most heartening is the way the industry has really come together and coalesced around the Tech Council. We started with 25 members, we're over 160 now, and then we also have a digital employment forum initiative, which has some major employers across the economy, major educators. So once you count that, we're over 170. So, you know, that fast growth and the building of community and support for the model has been really um pleasing for us and and we're kind of grateful for that support. I think the second thing is we've tried to be very research-led and to put out some quite groundbreaking pieces of work and I think in doing that we've been able to articulate the benefits to the community and do things like develop a jobs goal and and kind of explain the diversity of people working in the sector and and I think having that evidence base has helped us both build more confidence in the sector within the community and more confidence about you know, it's job creation impact, for example, but it's also helped us as an industry put forward more thoughtful policy positions. And then we're starting to see that in terms of some of the reforms that are now being progressed, you know, including uh, as a follow-up to the Jobs and Skills Summit. So I think that those two things, forming a community around the industry and getting its support and then being able to do credible work and working with governments to come up with good policy. I mean, that's probably what we founded. So it's really satisfying to see that coming to life in the first year. Kate Panda, thank you very much for joining us on Retail Therapy today. Congratulations on your achievements and keep up the great work. We're lovely to have you. My pleasure. Thank you.
Joining me for a quick chat is Simon Holloway, co-owner and head of community at VeggiePod. VeggiePod create portable, durable and self-watering raised garden beds which take all the guesswork out of growing your own veggies. VeggiePod was founded by Matt Harris in 2009 when he failed to grow his own veggies and realised there must be other people having the same problem. The raised edible garden bed business really started to take off when yourself and Matt's brother Paul joined a couple of years later and the original design was reinvented. As a now well-established business, how do you continue to innovate and respond to customer feedback? Yeah, well, um, we're very blessed to be able to uh, be in contact with our customers all the time. Um, in Australia alone, we do an average of six shows a month. We're, we're glorified carnies in a way. We, uh, we're out and about from, you know, the really big shows, the Sydney Royal Easters right down to the little ag shows and vegan festivals and smart water product shows, you name it. But the, the main point there being we are constantly talking to our customers, constantly receiving feedback, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. It gives us ideas. Uh, it lets us know where we need to improve things. And uh, I wouldn't swap that for anything in the world. We need that direct contact. VeggiePod have experienced huge growth in recent years and are now available in around 20 countries. What strategies have you used, including your partnership with American Express, to achieve that level of success? Yeah, look, we've uh, always asked for help. It's an old common one, isn't it? But when, whenever we've grown, we've always looked to other people who have succeeded before us. Uh, I always say to people, don't be afraid to ask for help. Human beings generally like to help other human beings. And, um, you know, it doesn't matter how big or how small they are or how big their persona is or not. If you ask people, you'll be surprised how many times uh, they will come back to you with help. So we've constantly asked for help. That doesn't just be to other entrepreneurs and other business people, but people within government, people within, um, you know, the accountancy and the finance spheres. And indeed, you know, that included Amex, you know, when we needed to get out to further customers and and uh, know how our customers spent their money on facilities, uh, they helped us. So, uh, yeah, just get out there and ask anybody and everybody for help, basically. Simon, you've been an American Express shop small merchant for a while and recently took part in a masterclass to share your knowledge with other small businesses. Can you tell us why that's important to you? Is knowledge sharing part of VeggiePod's ethos? Yeah, well, how could I put that former answer uh, across without then giving back? Um, of course, it's it's one big sphere of information. If you get yourself involved in giving information, I can assure you, you are always going to be learning something as well as you uh, as you impart your knowledge. So, uh, if I ever get asked to give uh, some help or, or some information, I, I find that as a privilege, and I know that generally. You know, given thou shalt receive, as long as it's not contrived, uh, one will receive stuff back. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Therapy, brought to you by our season partner, American Express. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you give the show a follow on your favourite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. If you're a new listener, you can find our back catalogue of episodes on our website. We've covered leadership, small business and sustainability. For more information about the work we do at the Australian Retailers Association, head to our website, retail.org.au. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram or Facebook, wherever you love to connect. All the links can be found in the show notes.